Well, we're starting a series right now, and we're trying to become more like Greg. Um, we're trying to, I'm being serious, guys. We're starting a series that's called Who's Your One? And we're thinking through what if God actually used us, ordinary people, to have spiritual conversations that resulted in people crossing the line of faith? And so this week and next week, and we'll take a little break from it, but we'll come back to it uh, toward the end of the summer. Uh, we want to be thinking through what if God used us to reach people for the glory of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he does that. That's his MO. God uses ordinary believers. He uses our conversations, and he leverages that to help people cross the line of faith. So um, maybe you got one of these on your way in. Uh, it's a bookmark, and it's a, an initiative called Who's Your One? And that's the name of the series that we're doing right now. Who's your one? So if you can pull that thing out and just kind of give me a little nod if you've got this somewhere. If you don't have it, we'll have it available as you cruise out on your way out this morning. But the thing that I want you to do is to take this concept of sharing your faith from the abstract idea of, yeah, that would be wonderful and I should do that. And I want to narrow it down even right now to a specific application. Now here's what I'm asking you to do. Think about a person that you know Think about a person that maybe you work with, maybe they're in your family, maybe it's a friend, an acquaintance, but think about that one person that you could commit to praying for and looking for opportunities for God to open a door for you to have a conversation with them. And what I'd love to see happen is for you to, to write their name down on a card like this, and it's perforated so you can pop this thing off, and maybe you keep this, this portion with their name on it someplace that's going to remind you throughout your, your rhythm of, you know, your ordinary week. Maybe it's, uh, you know, and you, you put it up on a mirror somewhere or in your car somewhere, and you, you have their name in front of you, and you just keep praying. The other piece of this bookmark is a Bible reading plan. And so if you've not taken a step yet of trying to interact with the Bible, this is a 30-day challenge with different scriptural references. So you could put this in your Bible, and each day you could go through and you could read a, a verse or a short passage about what God is doing, and that could help to just get you connecting with God and thinking about how he can use you to reach people who are far from him. And so I'd love for you guys to join me in this. I've, I've been thinking about it and praying about it. And um, my numbers might be small. Uh, maybe I'm too small-minded about this. But what if we embraced this initiative and all of us put a name down and started praying for them? Now, I know not everyone that we pray for, unless God is pleased to just send revival, probably not every name that we pray for and, and engage with will cross the line of faith. But what if a majority of them did? What if, what if we as a church family said, we're going to do this thing, and what if at the end of the summer, we're watching more baptism videos, we're doing more baptisms here, and we've seen, let's just say, what if 50 people cross the line of faith because you realize God can, by his spirit, use you to do significant things for the kingdom? So would you please join me in thinking about this and praying about this and determining who your one is, and then using the times that we gather together to really think through how could God leverage us for the sake of people crossing that line of faith. So we're going to go ahead and look at a passage this morning, and what we'll do each time is we'll look at an episode, an event where Jesus interacts with somebody one-on-one, -on -one. and we're going to learn from him then some different principles for sharing our faith. 
And we're going to see some things. He's going to set kind of an example for us. And as we go through these four different episodes, they're, they're all a little different. And I think that's important. So we're going to look at how he, shares his, how he shares the gospel message with a man named Nicodemus this morning in John chapter 3, a religious person. He's going to do that here this morning. And then we're going to look at how he does that with other people as well, because I know that the relationships that you have, they, they go across a broad spectrum. And there are some people who have more understanding of who God is or less understanding of who God is. And I want to give you a healthy sample of, of all these different times where Jesus does the one-on-one thing, interacts with people, and helps them to understand the gospel. So grab a Bible, they're down by your feet, and get with me to John chapter 3. It's on page 862 in the Bibles that we have here. We'll put the passages up on the screen as we work our way through them, but I'd love for you to be tracking with me and uh, paying attention to what Jesus does. Now, I'm going to pray right now, and then we're going to get after it, and I'm going to pray in a specific way. Um, I felt like la- the last service, I was robbed of the joy of preaching. And a part of the reason why was because I was very self-aware. And I'm going to pray that that doesn't happen again. Because here's one of the goals that we have when somebody's leading worship or somebody's preaching. I don't ever want you to walk away and go, wow, that was a great message. Core did a great job. The language I prefer would be, we've got a great Savior. And so I want to be self-forgetful in this moment. And I want you, by the Spirit of God, to encounter the risen Christ in this moment. And I just want to be in the background and let him be in the foreground. So let's pray, ask for God's help, and we'll get to work. Bow with me, please. God, we right now pray that you would use this time in a profound way. As we're going to see, your spirit moves. And it is mysterious how your spirit moves, but we want to have evidence that you are moving here today. Would you blow through here in a profound way? Would you make it known that you are accomplishing what you want to accomplish by your word? We pray, God, that you would inspire us to be a community that shares our faith with other people, that looks for opportunities to open our mouths and proclaim the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to be good representatives of that message. Lord, I pray for people in here because I know there are some who maybe have not crossed that line of faith yet. Maybe they have a religious heritage, but they've not surrendered to Christ as Lord and Savior. And would you use this time, God, to to make it abundantly clear that that's your greatest desire for them. Help them to surrender to Christ and experience new life in him. So God, we commit this time to you. We anticipate that you're going to do great things for your glory. And we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we look at this story, here's what's happening. A man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Uh, He visits with Jesus at nighttime, and they begin to interact in this dialogue. They begin to have a conversation. And Nicodemus is a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He's a a teacher of the people of God. Uh, He's he's part of the city council, if you will. He's, He's an important individual in their society. And he approaches Jesus saying, This is odd what you are doing, but I cannot deny that God is with you. And they then have this conversation, and Jesus does some very weird things in that conversation. I'm going to, you know, you guys are going to be a little bit weird as you do this as well, but he basically presses the issue to help Nicodemus realize that what God wants for him is more than just being a good religious individual. And he begins to show the nature of 
salvation and conversion and how all of that works. And, and um, Nicodemus is, is kind of astonished by it. He doesn't totally get it. But Jesus continues to make it clearer and clearer what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, really is and how it works. And what we'll see then are, are a handful of strategies that we, can, that we can begin to apply as we want to do this thing. So we're praying about our one, we're praying about our person that we're going to share the message of the gospel with, and we're going to look now to Jesus as an example for how to do this. The first thing that we learn in this story is that we should welcome private conversations. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 3. It says, now there was a, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus comes to him, and he begins to interact with him. They're having a, a conversation, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, dude, listen, I'm very, very busy, right? A lot of us, our schedules are crammed. We've got so much going on. Jesus did ministry, and he would have masses coming out to him for healing, for his teachings. He would have these huge crowds, and we read over and over again in the gospel accounts that he would often have to withdraw. He would have to go away to a silent place to pray and to get away from the crowds. And there was, there was a constant demand on his time and on his schedule where people just wanted to be with him, the disciples wanted their time with him. The crowds wanted their time with him. There, there were moments where somebody said, send Jesus and bring him so we can have a talk. And Jesus says, I'm too, really, he says, I'm too busy for that. But in this moment, he doesn't reject the invitation to have a, a spiritual conversation. He's open. He's welcoming of this private conversation with Nicodemus. So we need to recognize that Jesus is willing to engage with people in that one-on-one -on -one setting, and he was willing to have this conversation with him, and he was willing then to take what he knew about God and begin to apply it specifically to this individual. Now here's why this is important. I can develop friendships with people, and I could be having opportunities with them, and I could say, you know what you should do? Hop online and listen to my, my podcast, right? Listen to a sermon. Listen to this sermon. Or here's a book that you could read. Or, or um, you know, why don't you come to church and you could hear a sermon on something like this? No, I think it's important for us to recognize that God can use our ordinary conversations to accomplish profound things. That we can, if we make ourselves available, yes, eventually we would love for people to come to church and hear the message of salvation at church. We would love for people to be included in this experience here. But maybe the first step isn't that. Sometimes it is. People are receptive to it. But sometimes the first step is to say, let's talk about this. Let's have a conversation about this. Because for somebody to, like Nicodemus, end up in the synagogue with Jesus or following him in that crowd, that was too big of a leap for him. He needed a, another environment where he could interact with these ideas at a more personal level before being willing to go public with his association with this people. A lot of our friends, I think, that, that we're going to have a, a harder time getting them to church because by doing that, they're going to have all kinds of additional questions. You meet at a high school? What could, what's a church that meets at a high school? Uh, what am I supposed to wear? What do you guys do? I remember hearing stories about people who sat in, our, in the parking lot of Forest Ridge when we met over there, and they just watched people go in because they're like, I feel like I want to check this out, 
but I want to make sure they're not a bunch of weirdos. So they would park in the parking lot and watch you guys walk in for a couple weeks before they said, okay, I think I'm ready. And then they come in. A lot of our friends are going to be like that. They're not going to, the, the initial step that they take might not be that they're going to show up at church. But what if we made ourselves available to have these private and personal conversations where they can ask us questions and then we can help them sort through some of those issues in that one-on-one -on -one setting where it's safe and where they feel most comfortable? We should be willing to welcome these private conversations. So as you're praying about this person that you're putting down on your card, be thinking through, if God opens a door for you to have a conversation pray that you would be bold enough to open your mouth and respond. And, and I think God will use that. I think he will honor that. I think we see that pattern, not only in this story, but over and over again in all these stories we see, Jesus was willing to welcome the private conversation. Second thing that we learn here is that Jesus is willing to challenge personal pride and religious misunderstandings. As Nicodemus begins to interact with him, one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's helping Nicodemus to see what you think makes you right with God does not make you right with God. That's, that's confrontational, and Jesus is able to do it in a pretty profound way, but I think we need to learn that when we're interacting with people, one of the things we have to get comfortable with is that the message of the gospel really puts a line in the sand, and it says, there is a truth that you have to come to grips with, and it might challenge you in some ways that you think. You, you might have misunderstandings of who, who God is and how you might relate to him, but Jesus is willing to challenge that. Nicodemus is a, is a person who would have all of the right accolades, all of the right credentials. Look with me again at verse 1. It says there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. You know what the commentators are pointing out? And it says, look at all these descriptors. It's telling us about this guy. He's actually very significant. He's probably pretty comfort comfortable. He's probably pretty wealthy in different ways, both socially and materially. He's, he's a noteworthy person in their, in their society. He's a teacher. He's a ruling leader there. He, he's got all this stuff going for him. One commentator says he's probably the most credentialed person in town that night. Like he has everything going for him. And Jesus is going to show him, your credentials are not what makes you right with God. Now, here's why this matters. A lot of people think that to be in a relationship with God means you're a Christian, you're a good person, and you're doing certain things that make you like that. So the way that you relate to God is you stack up all these different Christian activities, and then you've got proof and evidence of your goodness. And that's really what commends you to God. And Jesus is breaking that thing down. And he's saying, no, that's not how you get a relationship with God. You get a relationship with God in this dramatic fashion that he's going to call new birth. Look at verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So Nicodemus comes and he's got all of these credentials. He's got all of this experience. He's a very religious person. And Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It's not a matter of you know, your level as a Pharisee. It's not a matter of how much Bible you understand. It's not a matter of the significant things that you've done in your life, your religious heritage. It's actually a matter of experiencing this newness of life that God imparts into you. You need to be born again. 
Without that, you can't even see the kingdom of God. That's different, but Jesus then is challenging religious misunderstandings. If I ask a person on the street, how do you get to heaven? The majority of people in our society would say, you have to be a good person. We can speak into that and say, that is not how you get to heaven. There is no one who is good enough to earn their way into heaven. God gives us new birth through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's how you're made right with God. Now, Nicodemus doesn't get it at first, obviously. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, how can someone be born when they're old? He's hung up on the, what are you talking about, dude? I I don't understand what you're saying here. And Jesus, he says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. And again, he's just pressing this issue home. If you want to know God, you have to be born from on high. If you want to know who God is, if you want a relationship with him, it's not a matter of your credentials. It's a matter of your faith in what God is doing. It's being born again that makes you right with God, which is pretty crazy, but that's what we we need to suggest to people. We, We need to challenge worldviews to help them see it is not a matter of being good enough to get into heaven. It's a matter of trusting in what God has done. Um, you know, if you're comparing the two, and this has been done by a lot of people more capable than me, but there's a big difference between religion and the gospel. And I'm using the word religion in a negative way. The Bible doesn't always do that, but it does point to this reality that sometimes we treat religious activity as a way that we can earn favor with God. And religion says, what do I need to do? Show me the exact steps so that I can do that, and then I can be comfortable, I'm right with God. The gospel says, God has done everything that you, need, that you need in Christ Jesus. The gospel says, surrender. The religion says, I need to do something. The gospel says, it has been done for you. Religion makes you self-righteous, because your project then is a self-salvation project. I need to do certain things, stack up enough good stuff in my life that I'm earning my way to heaven. It makes you ugly, because then you begin to look at other people and you go, you're not trying hard enough. You're not doing enough. You're not, and it makes you self-righteous, and you condemn other people. The gospel says, I don't deserve what I have. God, in kindness and mercy and grace, has rescued me and redeemed me. It beautifies the way that you deal with people. Because now, all of a sudden, you're seeing other people as struggling sinners like yourself, and you can relate to them and sympathize with them, and you can understand God is a gracious God who can do something profound in their life. So that's a significant difference. But the truth is, in my experience, and I think the Bible points in this direction, the hardest people to reach are religious people. Because they know enough about God that when they hear even a message like this, they go, I already know this stuff. The hardest people to reach with the life-changing power of the gospel are actually people who are sitting here, people like us, people who are religious people who have a a heritage of spirituality and they don't see a need then for a savior. They see a need for kind of a genie to come along and help them with some stuff they want improvements, but they don't see a need for a savior. I remember a trip I was taking, doing a mission trip in Africa, and um, the team, I was talking to a couple different people. I was young and and dumb at the time, so you can read this however you want. Um, But I was with a team and I'm having conversations and I begin to think, I'm not even sure if this guy is saved because of the way he would talk about stuff and some different things. And he's on a mission trip. And then the director says, hey, I want you to 
do a message for this group and, and uh, you know, preach a, m- a message that's going to help us. And I just, w- I was praying about it, and I was like, I don't think this guy understands the gospel. A few different people on the team I, was, I, I felt concerned over. And so I'm praying, and I'm asking for help from other people and just, you know, insight into it and prayers for it. And so I get this opportunity. I'm like, I'm going to preach on Revelation where it's talking about being lukewarm and being spit out of Jesus' mouth because there's a group of people in the book of Revelation who are like these people I'm seeing. And so I get all fired up, and I'm praying, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to preach my little heart out. And I get, I get up there, and I'm talking, and I'm sharing, and I'm trying to help people to see there's a difference between just calling yourself a Christian and surrendering to Christ. There's a difference between um, being, being warm, being hot for the things of God and just being kind of lukewarm and, you know, whatever. And I'm preaching my heart out and I'm, I'm getting after it. And then I look up, you know what the dude is doing? He's sleeping. He's, he's fast asleep. And I just think to myself, huh, this is often how religious people interact with this truth. It's so, it's so not for me that you can just sleep your way right through it. Jesus is doing something here where he's showing to be a member of the kingdom of God requires that you are born again. And there are some people who assume that they're members who may not, in fact, be members. We need to be willing to challenge people to show them the difference between religiosity, just doing Christian things, and actually being born again. And in our conversations, God can, by his spirit, give you the words to help you do that. But that's one of the ambitions we should have that we would help people sort through those worldview issues and those differences and help them to come to a reality that what they most need is not more activity. They need to surrender to what God has done in Christ. Here's the third thing that we learn in this conversation. We, we need to point to conversion. We need to point to the reality that when God works in a person's life, it is life-changing. It is a radical conversion. It is going from death to life. It is being born of water and spirit. Look with me at verses 5 and following. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's pointing to this conversion reality. He's saying there is something that God does that is dramatic. It's not simply a, a slight tweaking on your life. It is this, it, it's being born of water and Spirit. And it's noticeable. And it, it's mysterious, obviously. He says it's kind of like wind. It's like wind. You don't see wind, but you see its effect. You don't know where wind is coming from or where it's going, but you see the effect on it, of it on the things that it's kind of flexing on. So Thursday night, we're getting ready for the baptisms, and I'm watching the radar, looking at the, okay, where's the lightning striking? Because I don't want to be in a pool hanging out with a bunch of my friends when lightning's striking. So we're looking at the, you know, the little radar thing, and, and I start cleaning around the pool. You know, we've, my my parents have all, they had camp there, so a couple hundred kids coming through. There's like pool noodles and floaties and all this stuff. And I'm like, this doesn't feel like a sacred space right now. So I'm just moving some stuff, like, okay, let's get this all prepared. And I'm out there and I hear this noise. And I'm like, what, what is that? And I look up 
and I can't see very much because there's a, there's a, a bank of trees right beside the pool. So I'm trying to look through the trees, and I just hear this roaring noise. And then all of a sudden, the, f- the storm front comes through. So I'm standing there on the deck, and this wind comes through th- this bank of trees so hard that I get knocked back. And I turn around, and the deck furniture and the patio furniture, it just goes up in the air. It just f- flies off of the patio, off of the deck, just like that. I didn't see the wind coming. I heard it. But then I saw its effect, and it was dramatic. I saw that the wind had come through, and it did something. In the same way, Jesus is pointing to conversion, and he's saying, there's a reality that God does that you can't necessarily perceive. You can't, you can't see the Spirit working in that way, but you can see its effect. That when God brings about conversion, brings about this newness of life, brings about this new birth, it does something to people. And we should be pointing in that direction. We want people to surrender to Christ and for the Spirit of God to so work in them that we can say with confidence, they are born from on high. They are born of water and the Spirit. They have this new animation in their life because the Spirit of God has infiltrated their very being. We should be helping people to see that. Jesus is telling him the kingdom of God is something that has to do with the Spirit of God working in the hearts of individuals. And he's saying that's what we should be helping people to see. It's language of one of the prophets, Ezekiel, where it's talking about this reality that the prophets had been speaking of. There's a day coming when God's going to cleanse our hearts. We can wash our hands as much as we want. Um, But what God is going to do is he's going to give us a profound cleansing that we can't do ourselves. The other night we were helping somebody move and uh, we packed up the soap. And so uh, Harrison has to go to the bathroom and he goes to the bathroom and I'm like, well, there's no soap. And um, so he doesn't wash his hands. You know, no soap, no washing hands. And we get home and then, uh, we go, you know, Ash is asking me about the night and all of that. And, and then she wakes up in the middle of the night. She's a worrier, by the way, that's my wife. And she goes, I was up for a couple hours last night because I was thinking about the fact that Harrison didn't wash his hands. And then she was worried about how many other people maybe didn't wash their hands. And then we had dinner together and all of this. And she's like, I hope he doesn't get sick. I hope. And here's what we're learning here in this text. God is going to cleanse us in a way that we can't cleanse ourselves. We might be worried. A lot of us worry about how can I clean my life up? How can I get my life in order? How can I make myself presentable to God? And God here is reminding us what he does is a spiritual thing that we couldn't accomplish if we had all the soap in the world. He's able to cleanse us and give us new life, and that's what we need to point people to in our conversations. Here's a couple implications then. If you're going to have these conversations and we recognize it's a matter of God converting a person, um, two things. One, it's not going to be a technique, right? You're not going to walk away from this morning and go, you know what I need to do? I need to memorize a strategy so that every time I have a conversation, I can help people make a faith commitment. It's not going to be, uh, you know, something you memorize. It's not going to be a technique. It's a work of God. It's a blowing of the Spirit of God. The other thing then is we should be praying an awful lot, right? If this is something that God does by His Spirit, that means I can't do it. God must do it. And I should be praying then that God would blow in, the, in a certain way in the hearts and lives of people that I care for and want to see come to saving faith. All right, here's the fourth lesson. 
Very important part of our message here. The fourth thing that Jesus teaches us here in this interaction is that we need to lift high the Son of God for salvation. We need to lift up Jesus Christ and make it known when we're talking about conversion and new birth and the newness of God in the heart of an individual, we are talking about somebody looking at Jesus Christ with their eyes of faith and trusting in him as, as Savior. We need to lift him up. And he makes it clear in the next little interaction, Nicodemus is astonished. He doesn't know what's going on. He says, how can that be? And Jesus says, you should know better. You're Israel's teacher. You've read your Bible. You ought to know that conversion and faith are, are something that God brings about and he's saying, you're Israel's teacher. Haven't you read your Bible? Don't you know these things? And then he's able to say, the reason why I can speak so confidently on this is because of who I am. He, say, he points to heaven and he goes, look, no, nobody has been to heaven except for the Son of God who was sent from, the Son of Man who was sent from there. And he's essentially going, and that's me. He's saying, if you want to understand how all of this stuff works, Jesus is saying, look to me. I'm uniquely qualified to both tell you about this and to be the one through which these realities come true. He says in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He's pointing to an old story, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but there was a time, and it's in Numbers 21, there was a time when the people of God were living in the desert wilderness, and there were venomous snakes and the snakes would come in, and I don't know if you guys are freaked out by snakes. I sure am. When I lived in Florida for a little bit, and I had to mow a lawn, and there were all these baby snakes around, so you'd be mowing, and then you'd like jump up on stuff. It freaks me out. But they had venomous snakes coming through the camp. And Moses prays, and he says, God, what can, what, what can I do here? These people are being bit. They're getting poisoned and dying. What can I do? And God says, here's what you need to do, Moses. Take a snake put it on a pole, build a snake, like a, an image of a snake, put it up on a pole, and then instruct the people that anyone who looks on this snake will live. They've been bitten. All they have to do is look at the snake and live. And you guys know that symbol because when you go to the pharmacy, it's on your gear. It's on your prescription. It's, a, it's the reality that, that in the Bible, God says, here's the way to avoid this judgment and death. It's looking at a snake. And now Jesus is saying, that was pointing to something much better. It was pointing to something much better. He's saying, just like that snake had to be lifted up and then anyone who would look at it would be spared, the Son of Man had to be lifted up so that anyone who would look on him wouldn't just be spared from venomous poison, but would be spared from eternal condemnation. He's saying, here's the, here's the way of salvation. You look on Jesus Christ. Isn't that, it's so humbling. It's, it's actually humiliating. Do you want to be saved? Here's what you need to do. Look at him. We want something better than that, right? Most of us are like, no, I can do better than that. I can, just let me do something. Let me make a strong contribution to my salvation. And God is saying, the way of salvation is to look at Jesus Christ with eyes of faith. You look on him and you will experience saving grace. Everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Then he goes on to explain it. Look at verse 16, one of the most famous verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Salvation, new birth, conversion, the Spirit of God in the heart of individual people, it comes by looking at the Savior. It comes by trusting in him, believing in him, and receiving eternal life then. And so that's what we need to do as we have conversations. We are trying to get people to see Jesus as the Savior. He is the one who we can place our trust in and experience salvation. Here's the final thing that we learn in this passage, and I'll hustle through it. It's, it's that we need to help people recognize they need to make a decision. We need to call for a response. And Jesus does that here. The teaching points in this direction. There's a choice to be made. If Jesus is presenting himself as Savior, you either surrender to his saving work or you reject what he is suggesting here and you're proving yourself to be condemned. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Here's what he's saying. You have to make a choice. You have to decide if you're going to surrender to this way of salvation that God has given to us, or if you're going to push that aside as irrelevant. But then what you would be doing is you would be rejecting the name of God's one and only Son, and that will not go well for you. You have to make a choice. In our conversations, we don't just want to present Jesus and go, okay, I'm glad I'm done here. Peace out. I'll see you later. We want to say, will you choose him for salvation? Will you surrender to him? Will you respond to him with faith? He's made a way for you to experience eternal life. Will you surrender to that? Believe on that. Experience that in a profound way. We want people to make a response to this message. And so what I'm going to do here is I know that some in here maybe have never responded with faith to Jesus. Maybe you have a religious heritage, but you've not experienced new birth. And so I'm going to ask us all to stand in just a moment, and I'm going to pray over all of us, and I'm going to invite the band to come, and we'll worship once more. But, but I want to make it, I want to call for a response right now. So as we looked at this, we see that we should welcome private conversations with people. We should challenge religious misunderstandings. We should point to the mystery of conversion. We should lift high the Son of God for salvation. And we should call for a response to him. So would you stand with me, please, and I'll pray. Holy Spirit, please blow in this moment. Blow on our hearts and in our lives in a way that makes us understand in a fresh way our need for you. Help us to see the inadequacy of our religious efforts to try to prove ourselves worthy of the kingdom of God. and Instead, help us to surrender to the way of salvation, the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Help people to cross the line of faith, go from death to life, experience new birth and conversion, and filling with the Spirit of God. God, I pray for anyone in here who has not yet surrendered to him. Would you, would you make it undeniable that you are inviting them, even in this moment, to take a step of faith and say, I want him, I'm surrendering to him, I'm trusting him. For those of us that really struggle because of our religion, help us, God, to confess that that cannot save us, but Jesus can. 
We pray in his name. Amen. Would you join us in singing? I'm going to head back to the prayer station.